Well, as I mentioned, uh, re- we just, I just finished uh, teaching a course overseas uh, for two weeks on the book of Galatians. And uh, so it seemed like a fruitful time to maybe just together uh, open this book. And, and if I can uh, compress uh, 30 hours of teaching into an hour and a half or something like that, then uh, we'll call it uh, a day. Uh, we won't be quite so long. But sometimes it's helpful to get a, 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 a big picture look at a book. Sometimes we might, it's, you know, we talk about you know, uh, missing the forest because you're so focused on the trees. Um, I, my, in college, I studied bacteriology. And uh, you study bacteria with, with two things, uh, biochemistry and a microscope. And in the microscope, so we became quite adept at doing all kinds of things with a microscope. But one of the things we learned, the first thing you do is you, you, they have multiple lenses on it, and the, you, know, you can rotate them. And you usually start with the smallest power of the microscope just to kind of center your object in, in, in the field of, of vision and, 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 and kind of focus in on it. So once it's clear there, then you can click down to the next power, and you might have to adjust that a little bit. But, but you, you start with the big picture the, and, and kind of see the whole before you start cranking down to look at the parts. And so this will be a chance to get the, um, the big picture look. Now I know it, when you'll hear people talk today about getting the uh, 30,000 foot view. You know, they use terminologies of, of aircraft. When I'm at 30,000 feet, I'm barely looking out the window. So we'll, we'll talk about microscopes. We're gonna look at the 10 power view of Galatians. And, and in your, your bulletin, you have a, an outline that kind of breaks it down into three parts, which just kind of shows you Paul was thinking very biblically uh, because he had a three-part outline. In, in the first two chapters, we're going to say that Paul was defending his credentials. He was defending his credentials in chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 3 and 4, he was defending his creed. He's defending his creed in chapters 3 and 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul was directing our conduct. So you can see Paul was pretty creative. He had it alliterated, stuck, stuck together. Uh, verse, chapters 5 and 6, directing our conduct. You might strike you as odd. Paul was defending his credentials. Let's step back and see, first of all, to whom is he writing? He's writing to the Galatians uh, and, and that's a group of churches that he, is, he, start, he planted on his first missionary journey. If you were to look at a map uh, and you look at modern-day Turkey or, or in your Bible map, Asia Minor, it's pretty much right in the center of Asia Minor or uh, in Turkey. And it's a, um, th- that's where he went and established a number of churches on his first missionary journey. And God blessed and, 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 and amazing. He spent this time. He would go into these communities. Usually he started by he'd find a synagogue and go and preach there until he was expelled. And, and, but, but then in that time, he would, he would start reaching out to the Gentiles, and, and uh, many came to faith, and churches were planted uh, throughout this whole region. Churches of, of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah preached in the, in the Jewish scriptures. Well, at Paul's sending church was uh, what we call Syrian Antioch. It's a city named Antioch, and if you thought carefully what that means, it was probably in Syria. 
Uh, and actually, we say we call, I like to call it Syrian Antioch, and we we'll often do that because there was there were lots of Antiochs. It's kind of like uh, Terrell. There's Terrells all over the place, or maybe not. But I always, whenever when someone says they're they're going to take a trip to uh, to Paris, I always say uh, East Texas. <laughs> well, he's um, he was uh, talking to these churches who were he, from his home church which was Syrian Antioch. There's a Pisidian Antioch coming up, kind of up in their area. But his home church was uh, in, in Syria, in Antioch, the first predominantly Gentile church that, that God established. Well, Paul got home from his missionary journey, and he was uh, still unpacking his clothes practically when word started coming. And again, I'm, we're so used to our fast-paced communication, aren't we? Uh, texting and and, and sometimes uh, I've even been guilty. I, I texted 10 minutes ago. Why haven't they responded? Uh, you know, you can imagine everything back then was letters and couriers. But word started coming to Paul. And I don't know. You get the sense maybe that maybe there was even a sense of panic. Paul, people have followed up your ministry in the churches in Antioch. And they're telling them something different. They're, they're, they're correcting and and. and uh, re- refuting your message. They're telling the Gentiles that since Jesus is Jewish and they want to follow the Jewish Messiah, uh, they need to become Jews to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And, and, and um, it's causing some confusion and causing some problems. Well, we get the sense that Paul just sat down and instantly rattled off a letter and partly, it may be that it seems like he may have handwritten the book of Galatians, at least at the end, because at the end of the book he says, notice with what large letters I'm writing. Paul had a, an eye problem. And, and so he says, you, you can recognize my handwriting. I'm, this is, I am writing to you this personally. But the first thing he has to address is this, this problem of false doctrine that has come in. And, and starting in chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, I'll just take portions out of this book as we're going through. Listen to what Paul says. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, for there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That's strong language. He's saying, my friends, there are not a variety of gospels. In our culture, in our day, we hear people talking about, well, that's your truth and this is my truth. Uh, Paul will have none of that. There is one gospel, and there is non-gospel. And so he's saying, you've got to understand, I brought to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care who comes to you. If, I, if, if we should go back and preach a different gospel, you stand firm in what you have already received. This is heresy. This is an abomination. It's apostasy. It's error. He says, even if an angel should come to you and preach to you another gospel. Sometimes I think, was he looking forward to when Mormonism would arrive? 
arise and say, an angel has come and shown us new things. No. No, Paul is saying, I don't care who tells you. This, what I told you, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things we often see, if, if you want to attack a message, you attack the messenger. Don't we see that today? How much in, in the world of politics, for example, so much of it's personal attack, personal attack. And, and really, the message becomes almost secondary. It's all personal. Instead of what's truth and what's right, it's, it's, an, it's all personal. Well, they were doing that in Paul's day. And they were saying, well, this Paul, who is he? He says he's an apostle. Well, what, did he travel with Jesus? Did he, was he one of those 12 who, who was with Jesus, uh, sent out by Jesus? Is he, an, he, he wasn't an apostle, but we're coming from Jerusalem. See, these were, uh, these were Jews who professed to be Christians. And they said, we come from Jerusalem. We know the church in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, that's where the apostles are. Paul's no apostle. In fact, he was a persecutor of the church. And, and, and so you can't believe him. We're going to tell you the truth. You Gentiles, bless your dirty hearts. You don't know any truth, and so we're going to help you understand the truth because we've been raised in, Ju- in, in Judaism. And so Paul says, if they come to you with any other message, it's, it's, there is no other message. There's only one gospel. And so that's his point. There's either you're believing in Jesus Christ in the, by the true gospel, or you don't have Christ because your gospel is false. Notice he says, I am marvel that you, if you look at your Bible as I read and see if, if I match you, in verse 6 of Galatians 1, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from the gospel. He didn't say that, does he? I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you. And so he says, this isn't just a denominational difference, a philosophical controversy. When you abandon the gospel that that I brought to you, you abandon Jesus Christ. And that's central to what his whole message is. He, he wasn't out promoting a philosophical message. He wasn't out promoting a better ethical system. He wasn't out saying, this is the worldview you need to have. He was presenting a relationship with a person. That man could have a relationship with the eternal God through the gospel message that Paul preached. Well, partly he needs to summarize his own credentials then. You know, when we read Paul, he hates to talk about himself. It's the last thing he wants to talk about because he preached Christ, not Paul. But central to his message is his authority to preach it. So often in situations that we deal with in our life, the question is, what, what are your credentials? What right do you have to speak here? Do you have the authority to enter into this part of the building? Um, what's your background that you can say those things? Imagine you've gone into the surgical operating room and the, and the doctor comes in and, and takes the scalpel into his hand and, and as you're about to go to sleep, you f- remember, I forgot to ask something. You are a doctor, aren't you? Did, 
And as you're, as you're drifting away, did you get an MD somewhere? A little late to ask. No, no. I, I, actually, I actually look at those, those diplomas they put on the wall. And um, I've never yet called a school to confirm it's authentic. But it's get comfort to me. You're, you're, you know what we're saying? You've got the credentials. And Paul says, you're embarrassing me, but let me talk to you about my, my credentials. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. You've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. See, he lays out in, in, in chapters 1 and 2, his, he, he was in, in other places as well. He was born in a, in a devoutly Jewish family. He was raised up in the teachings of the Pharisees. And, and, and he was a Pharisee. Uh, and in, in Israel, there were about 6,000 Pharisees. I mean, so he was in a small group. He trained under one of the greatest rabbis of the Pharisees, Gamaliel. And so he tells us in various passages, if we bring them all together, though he was born in Tarsus in a Gentile city, he was a Hebrew-speaking Jew. He was a, uh, not, not a Hellenized Jew, trained in the most traditional of religions among the, the Pharisees, brought to, to Jerusalem as a youth to be di- discipled, mentored, and trained under Gamaliel. So he had all the academics. In fact, he was kind of at the top of his class. Everybody looked at him and said, this is the guy that's going to carry us into the next generation. In fact, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous. I hated the name of Christ, and I hunted down those who preached it. But God. And so in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, when it, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. What he says is uh, God stepped in. That's the Damascus Road experience. He was going to Damascus ready to spread persecution beyond Israel. But on the way, the Lord Jesus Christ met him. That's a powerful thing where he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The apostle Paul met the resurrected Christ. And so in in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I was an apostle um, out of time. Like uh, I wasn't born when I should have been born. In other words, I was late. I wasn't one of the 12. But God called me as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So I, yes, an apostle has to know and have seen the resurrected Christ. He says, I, I saw the resurrected Christ. He appointed me. And that becomes important because when you reject the message of Paul, you're rejecting the message of Christ. And he wants them to understand that. This is not my message. And so he, he talks about, I didn't go and then you know, run to the apostles and say, would you, would you teach me what's truth? Jesus Christ told him the truth. When he did go to Jerusalem, Basically, his attitude is, this is what I got from Jesus Christ. I hope you're saying the same thing or you're in trouble. And they said, we're saying the same thing. God's called us to the Jews. He's called you to the Gentiles. And they had the right hand of fellowship. They shook hands over it. But Paul's point is, I'm not speaking my ideas. 
It's not that I'm smarter than someone else, better than someone else, have a new and better approach. I am telling you what I received from Jesus Christ himself. The resurrected Jesus Christ came and taught me and said, you go preach this gospel. When we re reject the teachings of, Jesus, of, of the apostle Paul, we are rejecting Jesus Christ. And that's important because there's a growing trend in churches and even the evangelical churches that will say, well, Paul, you know, he had his problems. He brought, you know, he brought in his, uh, some of his Jewish ideas that are contrary to God's way. You know, he's, he's bringing in man's traditions and ideas. Oh, he's a man of his time. No. No more than Jesus is a man of his time. Paul speaks the message he received directly from God. When we reject the teachings of Paul, we are rejecting the teachings of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 3, is a popular memory verse, but it lays it out. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He says God, the Bible is breathed by God. It, it is so God's word, he breathed it out. I think, how did that work? Because men wrote it. Second Peter tells us, and Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, it's not man's ideas. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, in my teaching uh, these last two weeks, I, I compared it to the Incarnation. Well, Jesus was born of a woman. He had the DNA of a woman, but he, didn't, he did not have the sin nature. And in the same way, though the scriptures are written by man, reflecting man's uh, personality and experience, yet so inspired by God it is without error. And, and, and remember how Jesus said, not one word, not one jot, not one tittle will fail. The jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle is the smallest part of the Hebrew letter. And so he's saying, it's all absolutely true because it's all from an absolutely true God. And so the question might come, well, what about Paul? Is, is, does that scripture stuff apply to him? Peter made some interesting remarks at the end of his epistle in chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Now consider 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Also, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. And I always take comfort in that because I sometimes wrestle with, what is Paul saying here? Well, Peter said, I wrestle with understanding all that Paul says. But notice he continues which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they also do the rest of the scriptures. Peter's saying, while Paul's writings might be hard to understand, they are included with the rest of the scriptures. So there was no controversy or conflict between Peter and Paul, and, 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 and he endorses Paul's message as scripture, and the point being, it is, it is God's very word.
again, that's an issue we need to be clear and strong on. And so I, in, in my class, I, I took time and uh, like a little excursus on the doctrine of inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture because it is so vital. Sometimes when you're building a new house, it gets really frustrating. You spend all this time digging out and putting down a foundation. And it's really frustrating when you realize how much they want to charge you just for a foundation. But can you imagine someone saying, oh, that, that's so expensive. I'm not buying all that cement. Just put up the house on the dirt. You wouldn't want to buy that house, right? And so the foundation is absolutely essential. Now, foundations are made out of cement, and there's two rules of cement that I've learned. It gets hard and it cracks. God's word is never changing. It's absolute, and there is not one hint of a crack in it. And so Paul had to take the time to basically make clear to them, I was raised in all that Judaism, true, but I have repudiated that man's traditions because I met the resurrected Christ, and I am telling you what he told me to tell you. So so these false teachers that are telling you, yes, but I've heard from Rabbi so-and-so, and and I've heard from so-and-so, I am telling you what I heard from Jesus Christ. So he spends the first two chapters defending his credentials. And as he moved on, I'm sure he felt like he breathed kind of a sigh of relief. I hate talking about myself. But he wasn't really talking about himself. He's saying, I just want you to know what I'm telling you is from Jesus Christ. Well, in chapters 3 and 4, he then defends his creed, the gospel that they've been attacking. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It seems a little strong when he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. If I can loosely paraphrase what he's saying, he's saying, What are you thinking? Have you ever experienced that? You're talking with somebody. Sometimes you say that about yourself. What was I thinking? And the whole point was, you weren't. And what Paul is saying is, what you literally unthinking Galatians, you brainless, that, he's probably saying, you, he could be saying, you brainless Galatians, but really he's saying, you're not thinking. Come on now, you know better. What are you thinking? And, and who has bewitched you? And that was used like of, of casting a spell, and so he's suggesting There's a spiritual force behind this deception, and it's not God's. Is there a demonic influence? Who has bewitched you? Why aren't you thinking that you should? Who's kept you from obeying the truth? And notice there's truth in believing it. We're obeying it. We're submitting to it. Truth is not, we hear this again, this is my truth. The God I worship would never do that. But does the God you worship exist? The issue is, what's the truth? Um, the car I drive is a Rolls Royce. You go out and look at it and say, poor Drake. Who has bewitched him? 
It doesn't matter what I think it is. The issue is, what is it? Isn't that where we are today? If you think it, you are. No, you are what you are. And so Paul's saying, who's bewitched you? I, I pro-, he said, and he says his gospel message, what he did, I showed you Jesus Christ and him crucified. What a glorious description of what it means to share the gospel. I showed you Christ. I showed you Christ. And so he says, now that you're, what, the, what they were coming, these, and we call them Judaizers that were coming along. Their, their message was, you Gentiles, it's wonderful you believe in Jesus. That's great. You know, Jesus is one of our guys. He's Jewish. But if you're going to follow Jesus, I mean, Jesus went to the synagogue every, every week. Jesus was circumcised. Jesus was under the law. As a matter of fact, Paul will say that. He was born under the law. You want to follow Jesus, you need to follow Jesus and become a Jew. That's why the circumcision issue is such. That was not, that's how the, you, you marked your, your, your conversion to Judaism. You need to obey the law to believe in Jesus Christ. And, and Paul's response is, what are you thinking? Who has fooled you? No. And so he starts reasoning. And right from the beginning of his two chapters on arguing about his creed, he says, just tell me this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing of the faith? What he's saying is, you were born again. God, the Holy Spirit, gave you a new heart. He, he caused you to be born again. He gave you life, and you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the possession and experience of any true believer in Jesus Christ. Born again, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, did that happen by the works of the law? Was it keeping kosher that caused you to be born again? And so his, his point will be, as you begin the Christian life, so you continue it. As you're saved, so you're sanctified. By grace through faith. Plus nothing. And so, he, so he, he talks to them about his gospel, and he talks to them about their own experience of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3. Again, are you so foolish? This is a different word, but strong. Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Having been born again by grace through faith alone in Christ, do you think you can improve on that by adding the works of the flesh? Man, in other words, man's effort, man's works. Now, one of the questions that comes up is there a place for works in the Christian life? And that will come up here as well. But works are a fruit of that new nature not something you do to get the gospel. It's the fruit that comes out of the gospel. And so he's talking to him. Now, come on. You believed in Christ. You were born again. Was that by works? No. Why do you now want to add works? Can you improve on being born again? Can you improve on being indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Well, of course, if you're going to have an argument about these things, you've got to go to the Old Testament scriptures and and Paul, so he brings out some examples. And when we think of the faith, when we think of belief, when we think of the heritage of the Jews, we go all the way back to Abraham. We, we've been listening recently of, in the Middle Eastern world of the Abrahamic Accords. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all trace our heritage to Abraham, really through the Jews. 
And so he says, all right, you, you want the Jewish perspective? Let's go back to kind of the original Hebrew, Abraham. Just as Abraham, Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of the faith are the sons of Abraham. What did Abraham do? He believed God. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God. It was counted him for righteousness. Period. Plus nothing. And so he, he and then he will go on and quote from Habakkuk. So he quotes Genesis, and then he goes to the minor prophets, Habakkuk, and quotes uh, chapter 2, verse 4. This is such a key verse. It's three times in the New Testament, twice in Paul and once in Hebrews, which if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, I'm not so sure, but then that would be all three Paul. But, but it's a key verse. He, he says uh, in Galatians 3, 11 to 14, no one is, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For, quote, the just shall live by faith. That's what you read in Habakkuk. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Law says, do for life. God, grace says, the just live by faith. And so he emphasizes the basis of our salvation is the cross. Remember, I presented to you Christ crucified. 3, 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessings of Abraham, promised in Genesis 12, 3, might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so he makes it absolutely clear. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. If you go over to Romans 4, he makes the same argument with Abraham and David. In Galatians 3, 19 to 25, he says this. He, you know, one of the questions that it was kind of interesting as I was teaching this in the class that came up, well, when, what's the purpose of the law? And I was right at the end of one of our, the lectures, and I, and I said, um, that's exactly the question Paul wants you to ask. And, and I can't tell you the answer. It's a secret. You have to come back to the next lecture. I want to make sure you come back tomorrow, so I won't tell you. Well, here's what Paul's answer. He, he's, he's saying, so what, wait, what, why, why the law if that's not for salvation? Chapter 3, verses 19 to 25. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But if faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. And so he said, what was the law for? Basically saying, he uses the example, for example, of, of a tutor. When we think of tutor, that's someone who um, teaches. Matter of fact, the, the word tutor is the Greek word pedagogue. Pedagogy, pedagogy is the, uh, the, the science of instruction. But in the Greek world, literally the word pedagogue means a child leader and I um, 
in my class, I, I showed a picture from an ancient vase that showed a pedagogue, an old man, uh, carrying the kid's uh, harp that he would use for his music lessons and a stick, which was probably what kept him in line. The pedagogue was a slave who went along with a youth and would, would walk and make them safely, get them safely to school and back. And they would kind of keep them under control, kind of like a, a, not a nanny, which is usually a little kid, but a governess kind of thing. So that it was a slave appointed by uh, the father to say, you take care of him, you keep him in line. Um, until the child reached adulthood. And then they didn't need the tutor. They didn't need the pedagogue. You know, it's just, you can imagine, you, know, you hear about some of the families in Europe, like the royal family, often raised by a governess or a, uh, a nanny. You know, can you imagine the king calling up his governess and saying, is it okay if I stay up an hour later tonight? Well, a six-year-old might ask that. And of course, the answer is always no. But, but, but an adult doesn't ask that. And he's saying the law was what kept you, uh, kept you from the pagan ways and kept you until Christ came. It was never intended to be a means of salvation. Well, moving along, I think we'll just go on to the next two chapters. In chapters 5 and 6, directing our conduct. And if you say, yes, I'm skipping a lot, yes, I'm skipping a lot. That's the, of course. So, so what he's done is he's explained the law is not for salvation. And he has all kinds of examples and illustrations and to teach that. So then the question is, well, okay, if we're saved by grace through faith, then the next question is, wait, I've heard this a lot. I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not works. Yep. Well, that means I can live a sinful life as I want. No. And so chapters 5 and 6 say, so why then do we live in a different way? He lays some of that out. In, in verses 1 to 4, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Don't get out of the law. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You've become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. So he's hammering. It's, it's not something you do. And, 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 if you, and if you think you're going to do a little bit of law here, a little bit of law here, you, say you can't separate it. You have to have the, the whole package. I probably don't have time, but I'll tell an illustration from a, one of the Ivy League schools in, in the early days of the country. The students were sitting down to the final exam, and one of the students said uh, uh, to the professor, may we please have some cakes and ale? And the professor said, what? I'm not taking this exam until I get my cakes and ale. Just sit down and take your stand. No, no, I will not. He said, who do you think you are? He said, this is exactly what the university says you're supposed to provide us, cakes and ale. Sure enough, it was in the charter of the school that before exams, a professor had to provide cakes and ale. Well, cakes and ale were not readily available, so I think he went to Dunkin' Donuts or something and you know, got, them some, got them some coffee and cakes or something, and they, were, they, they agreed to let that pass, and so the, the student won. 
Later on, the professor sent him a, fine, a, a bill for 500 shillings. It seems the, um, the, the school's charter um, had a, a requirement that if a student should come to class not wearing his sword, he was to be fined 500 shillings. <laughs> you want the law? You get it all. And so, uh, so Paul's saying, you don't want the law. That's not how you were saved. That's not the gospel I brought. You don't want the law. Believe me, I've lived under the law. So what do you do? He says in chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he gives us this, this list for the lusts of the flesh against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And These are contrary to one another, so you do not do the things you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. This is a partial listing of what sin looks like when it bears fruit in our lives. And I tell you, those who practice such things, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You walk the way of the flesh. You want, you're counting on the flesh to get you salvation. Let me tell you what the flesh gives. Filth, but no kingdom. And then in verses, chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, he goes on, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then with a smile, he says, against these there is no law. In other words, you want law? There's no law against this. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit produces in life. The golden, pristine character. So notice what he's saying is, if you've got the Spirit, this is the fruit. If you don't have the fruit, you must not have the Spirit. And so, what about the law? It was a temporary add-on. What about works? Then Does that mean I can live any way you want? If you live by the works of the flesh, you're lost. But if the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in your life, that's the evidence you're born again. If you don't have the fruit, you need to go back to the root and see, do you truly have Christ? But you can't do the works in the flesh. There is, um, F.B. Meyer tells the story, I think he owned a, a, a sawmill. Uh, to produce, I guess, firewood. Was, I don't know why you need a sawmill to produce firewood. But, but he hired these people, and you know, they, were, they were kind of down and outers, and it was a way to help them out. I'll give you a little money. You cut some wood. Kind of low skill, and oh, it was frustrating. They got so little done. It was, so, it, it was just the most frustrating thing, and finally said, I'm not helping you. I'm not helping me. I can't, I can't continue this. And so he, he, he fired them all, and he, and he bought a saw, a power saw. You know, run, run on gas. And, or maybe it, was, it must have been steam by then. So all of a sudden, he was cranking all, all kinds of firewood for a lot cheaper and a lot faster than ever before. And, and he thought, well, there's a lesson here, isn't it? The works of the flesh, the strength of the flesh is not enough. Why is that saw so much better than those guys I tried to hire? They don't have the power the saw has. 
And so what he's saying is the issue is, is what's in your heart? It's not who can do better things. It's not an external thing. It's not an externalized religion. It's a changed heart. And our heart is changed through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter 6, he, all this had led to some, all kinds of conflicts. And so he starts talking about relationships. Bear one another's burdens. Uh, do good to one another. And so he gives them some encouragement as he closes off to try and restore and rebuild the church. But the essence of what he's saying is vital. The gospel message is not a message of, of morality. It's not that you need to clean up your life. You need to start coming back to church. It's you need to know Jesus Christ. And in knowing Jesus Christ, you will, he will, you will be born again. You'll be spiritually made alive. And God, the Holy Spirit, will dwell within you. And the, the amazing thing is the righteousness they're trying to accomplish by externals will, will, will ooze out of you as a natural fruit of the changed heart and life. But the message of Galatians is so important because it teaches us the gospel is, is the most important thing we need to know. That we, the, the, and the one behind the gospel, Jesus Christ, and to know him is life eternal, as the gospel of John tells us. And we need to be clear, clear that the, the religion is not externals and dues. Every religion of man, including uh, liberal Christianity, is, is, a, is a do your best to try and win God's approval. The message of the gospel is your best isn't nearly good enough. You need forgiveness and life, and it's freely yours when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The issue is Jesus Christ. When you leave the true gospel, you leave Christ. And the way to Christ is the true gospel. Are you, and so one of the messages we draw from that is, have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior? Or are you trying somehow to, to be good enough that maybe you have a shot at heaven? I read one politician. He was so proud of the uh, gun restriction laws that he had brought into force that he, someone asked him, do you think you're, you'll make it to heaven? He said, oh, I won't even stop at the gate. I am so in. With the laws that I've gotten passed in this uh, state, I've got it made. Boy, is he going to be disappointed. It's not what you do. To quote a, a paraphrase, the old proverb, it's not what you do, it's who you know. Do you know Jesus Christ as, he, as he's revealed in the gospel? Have you trusted in him as Savior? You're not clear on that. We'd love to talk to you about it. For those of us who are believers, just a reminder of the importance of that. One of the students in, uh, in, in the class said, Teacher, I just want to tell you, I, I want to make a comment and give you some feedback on the class. And if ever you've been a teacher, instantly your, your heart grows cold. <laughs> and there's this chill. Oh, here it comes. And he said, uh, I, I lead a, a youth ministry, a, a children's ministry in the church. And what I've been learning from the book of Galatians is going to transform how we do ministry. We've been focused on the externals, outward conformity, behavior. And you've taught me that the real issue is the heart. And that's going to change the way we teach these children. 
That's, he got it. I should have just said, okay, you get an A, go away. <laughs> but, but do you get it? It's a message, not of works to please God, but a gift received and a life lived by his power and in our gratitude. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, whom you have shown to us so beautifully in the gospel. Lord, I do pray for any who hears these words today. May each one know Jesus Christ as their Savior. If there are any, Father, who hear these words and and have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray you will awaken them to the reality that they do not know him. Deliver from confusion. Deliver from error, I pray. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, deliver us from slipping back to relying on works to earn your approval. Instead, Father, may we rely on your Holy Spirit to transform us to your glory. And this I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.